previously on the Florida Files. The OK Corral, what else? They're just in the middle of the street shooting. The scene of the shooting was in the back of a shopping mall, and employees of many of the businesses said they heard what sounded like a bunch of firecrackers. You could hear the pop-pops and the bangs, and, and then you, I heard this kaboom, 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 and it was like a cannon, it sounded like it. After the dominoes fall on April 11, 1986, there are puzzle pieces to put together. In the days after the bloodiest shootout in FBI history, there are questions, many of them. Like, who are these two killers? They didn't have lengthy criminal rap sheets, and their names weren't even known until after they lay on a Southwest Miami-Dade residential street, bloodied and dead. As for the two suspects who died, police and the FBI are releasing very little. We know their names, Michael Lee Platt and William Maddox. They have no arrest records locally, we're told, but police and the FBI believe they'll be able to link the men to other crimes. In South Day, John Scott, Channel 10 Eyewitness News, on the Nightbeat. Local 10 and Local10.com present the Florida Files. I'm Michelle Solomon, and this is the story of the Sunnyland Miami shootout, the bloodiest day in FBI history. In an FBI training video, Gordon McNeil reveals what Platt was doing in the days before the shootout, when he wasn't robbing banks and shooting at armored cars. As Dave Rivers pointed out previously, Platt had purchased over 5,000 rounds of ammunition within 10 days of the shootout. And the man was firing anywhere between 750 and 1,500 rounds a week out in the Everglades. So he knew what he was doing. There's a murder scene to clean up and an investigation to conduct. Detective Sergeant David Rivers of the Metro-Dade Police Department is the supervisory detective in charge of the crime scene. So you say worst case scenario, is that the worst case scenario? Oh, I can't think of it being any worse. I mean, my gosh, two agents are dead, three with major wounds, two with minor wounds. Uh, whole neighborhood shot up. The shooting took place uh, over about a four or five minute period and we covered 119 shell casings. But there was more shots than that fired because some of the stuff got blown away when a couple of the helicopters came in and we were going to try to medevac agents out. Days after the shootout, investigators discover a pickup truck. This white pickup discovered in Kendall an important find. Metro Police and the FBI believe it may be connected to the so-called Rock Pit Gang. A stolen truck suspected of ties to a series of armored car heists and bank robberies that wound up with Friday's bloody massacre in a nearby Kendall suburb. Two killers gunned down after murdering two FBI agents and wounding five others. Detective Rivers talks about that white truck and other leads. I mean, I've done as long as five or six hours in doing presentations on this show on this thing and there's, there's just it's it's so complex and there were so many things that you know post shooting you can go back and and see how this whole thing coalesced all the way back to where they met in the military very very complex uh, case uh, 
especially when you go back and look at all the little pieces and then you see them all come together for that day. One other thing, that one of the other leads that they followed up was uh, we had another witness that actually followed them from one of the robberies and saw them get out of a car and get in a pickup truck. So at one point, uh, Gordon McNeil had, uh, since they were hitting it, we knew the, well, when I say we, they knew the area they were hitting in. He sent his guy down on what we call, uh, I don't know, a lead that's tedious work. He had him go up and down US-1 into all the shopping areas and stuff. And any pickup truck that fit the general description of the truck those people saw, he had him take the tag numbers down. And I forget how many there were, but they sent all of that information up to Tallahassee and requested registration information on all those trucks and a driver's license picture of all the people that owned it. That information came back three or four days after the shooting was over, and one of them was Platt's truck. Sometimes things happen if it had happened a few days before, maybe. But that's, that's speculation, which didn't happen. Back on the scene, dozens of federal and county investigators responding to the call, pouring over evidence to recreate the crime, piece it together. These are law enforcement officers in the most difficult of times, trying to do their jobs while unavoidably feeling the pain of a lost friend and colleague. Eyewitness News 10's Susan Candiotti is one of the reporters assigned to cover the FBI shootout. What I remember about that day in particular was when we got the call, racing to get there, and it seemed like it would take us forever to get there, but vivid in my memory was seeing police cars passing us by, going at speeding to get there. And then I remember thinking to myself, this is not good. As one car after the other after the other went by with their sirens wailing. And, and this was on a, flashing a Friday morning. Down the Florida Turnpike to get to the scene in South Dade from where our office was in Miami. Susan recalls a scene that looks surreal, something more like out of a movie set. I see myself reporting from the scene with the scene behind me. I can see the images as I look at them now, remembering that the cars, how they were lined up in, in a group where clearly that's where the chase ended and the shootout happened, and seeing the bullet-riddled cars with the windows smashed with all the bullet holes. And of course, the crime scene tape and the blood on the street and the yellow plastic sheets or tarps on top of the bodies that were still there. There's plenty of aftermath, things to consider, like what went wrong that ended up letting Platt take out the two agents and leave five others so injured. Some of it points to the type of firepower the FBI had when faced with no fear of authority killers who were using high-powered rifles. The FBI guys have only shotguns and revolvers. Local and federal investigators are still reconstructing Friday's shootout. They want no questions left unanswered. Not only for the immediate needs of, of reconstructing it, but as I said earlier, for the far-reaching uh, possibilities of training and, uh, and in hopes that this will never happen again. 
The chase and shootout on Southwest 82nd Avenue wound up with the killers and agents' cars scattered across the front yard and street. All this information eventually winds up in the hands of State Attorney Janet Reno. It is up to her to decide whether to order an inquest, which we are told would not be unusual in a shooting of this magnitude. At the Metro Justice Building in Miami, Susan Candiotti, Channel 10 Eyewitness News. It has been frequently suggested that the Bureau was outgunned on April 11th. Gordon, would you care to discuss that issue? I feel that we were adequately prepared. I felt that we had the weapons. I felt that we had a veteran crew. But we also came up against two individuals who were very highly trained, very highly experienced. Platt wasn't lucky with the weapon. Platt was very good. Special Agent Brian Jerome, you remember him from the second episode. He was the one that was supposed to be in the car with Grogan that day. Now teaches firearms for the St. Lucie County Sheriff's Office in Fort Pierce, Florida. It's still as bloody and gruesome and carnage filled as anything you would see in, you know, in 2018. Oh, definitely. I mean, the carnage is, and it just shows you the devastation of a trained individual can do. And I guess what becomes out of this is law enforcement realizes, wait a second, we're, we need to enhance our tech, techniques and we need to enhance our, our capabilities, you know, with equipment, in this case firearms, because we were totally outgunned. I mean, we're dealing with whether it was revolvers or semi-automatic handguns, they're going against, you know, uh, rapid-fire uh, you know what you all call assault weapons, but they're they're you know military grade weapons. After the shooting, FBI Director William H. Webster arrives in Miami from Washington to visit the injured agents. Uh, their morale was high, and uh, of course now they're, they're uncomfortable. Uh, they're grieving for the agents that were lost, but they are very, very proud of their group, their teammates, and very proud of the FBI and to be a part of it. Special Agent Edmundo Morales is released from South Miami Hospital 13 days after the shootout. The stocky former Marine is pushed by a nurse out of the hospital in a wheelchair. His left arm, so badly shattered in the gunfight, is in a sling. A crowd of reporters awaits. He's greeted with cheers. He's the reluctant hero, FBI agent Edmundo Morales leaving South Miami Hospital for home. The man credited with putting an end to the single worst tragedy in FBI history. However, the same man who stopped the getaway of two maniacal killers wouldn't talk about himself, preferring instead to praise the people he looks up to. 
Morales' wife Liz, also a Miami FBI agent, stood behind her husband as he added thanks to local police, rescue teams, the hospital staff who, in his words, put his left arm back together, and the public. When Maddox and Platt dove into an FBI car for a getaway, Morales staggered forward and killed them, emptying his revolver. Only one wounded FBI agent, Gordon McNeil, remains hospitalized. His release expected tomorrow. All of the agents are anxious to get back to work. None of them looks forward to seeing the empty desks that once belonged to agents Grogan and Dove. In South Miami, Susan Candiotti, Channel 10 Eyewitness News. Meeting the survivors is a memory that, despite all of her work covering many tragedies, the former Eyewitness News 10 reporter, who later went on to work for CNN's New York Bureau, says it's something she'll never forget. I think I had been a reporter for 10 years by the time this, when this happened. And covering a tragedy is never easy. Uh, covered the, the school shooting at Sandy Hook. Each one has its own set of circumstances, and you take, you take away from them different memories that stay with you for the rest of your life, the people you meet along the way, the victims, the survivors. And you think, how do they do it? How do people go on with their lives after going through something like this? And that's what I remember about particularly interviewing the survivors of, of this tragedy as well. Yeah, let's talk about interviewing um, the agents. My recollection is that I remember that some time had passed. And so it was a more formal setting when they were able to gather themselves to talk about this. But you could tell that the memory of what happened was just as vivid as though it had happened yesterday. And I remember them, one in particular, Edmundo Morales, breaking down as he, as he recalled that he wished he could have done more, or he wished he could have done it sooner before his friends had lost their lives. While Morales' wife Liz an FBI agent herself had been on many crime scenes. Now retired, she was an FBI agent for 25 years. She tells me that no matter how much her job prepared her, the emotions she experienced that day were nothing like she had ever felt before. I got there and I saw um, the bloody jacket on the the road I knew immediately that was Ed's um, and you know it just my heart broke that day <laughs> like everybody's did so can you tell me you recall that day can you tell me like just oh, kind of the timeline of it absolutely I mean and I still remember it like yesterday the car radio was just uh, it was chaotic almost uh, with one unit after another calling in with you know all their signals and stuff and I grabbed the mic and my partner Tony was driving so I grabbed the mic and I said hey you know this is unit so-and-so with these signals what's the location of the incident and 
that's when they said um, the approximate location off of Route 1. And I still remember I turned and looked at Tony and said, something's happened to Ed, I know it. And he's like, no, take it easy. It'll be all right. We'll get there. And we just hightailed it up there. So by the time we got there, um, they had already corralled the place off with the uh, crime scene tape. And there were uh, dozens of police cars, FBI cars. We found out, hey, which hospital they had just taken him to. And so we went out to the hospital. He just looked at me, and I looked at him, and he goes, hey, I, I, he kind of whispered, he goes, I killed those two sons of bitches. On the FBI training video, supervisory agent Gordon McNeil describes those heroic moments. Just a side note, the groovy 80s music underneath Gordon's voice, that's part of the original soundtrack to the training video. Ed struggled to his feet, drew his revolver, and started walking towards Grogan's vehicle. He said that as he got up, everything was starting to get dark around the edges. He was afraid that he was about to lose consciousness. To combat this, he focused all his energy on the occupants of the vehicle. He fired his first two rounds into Platt. He couldn't see Maddox clearly, so he moved closer and fired three rounds at him. By then, Ed was standing just outside the driver's window and put the last round into Platt. At this point, Ron Reisner ran across the street and told him that it was all over. Ed Morales tells me about those last minutes, too. You know, it happened so fast, you know. It's like, uh, I mean, it, it, it happened fast, but it didn't happen fast. You know, it was kind of a, you know that most gun fights, most police shootings happen in, in five to ten seconds. Wow. That, I mean, that, that's the average gun fight. <clears throat> I mean, it, it, it goes, you know, car stop, hey, sir, can I see your license? And then, you know, somebody's either running away or someone's down on the ground, okay? That's how fast they happen, okay? This thing happened for like four minutes, maybe five minutes, you know, four and a half minutes, five minutes. That's a lifetime, you know, in, in a shootout. I'm thinking, well, you know, shit, I'm going to die. But then the other part of me, the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the I guess the Marine side or, or the less Christian side of me said, bullshit, screw this. I said, hey, these guys shot you. These, these guys, for all intents and purposes, purposes have killed you, you know, and they're still in the car, you know, because I, I had fired my shotgun at them, you know, and I wasn't 100% sure that they were dead. So I said, hey, you know what, if I'm going, you know, it's a nice Christian thought, you know, <laughs> if I'm going to die, they're going to die too. I want to make sure they're dead. That was half of it. The other half of it was the, I still held out hope for survival. You know, I didn't know whether Ben and Jerry and John were alive or dead, you know, but it, it didn't look good. Three days after the shooting, 20 motorcycle policemen ride in front of a line of 220 patrol cars headed to North Dade County to the Visitation Catholic Church, 
where a service is held for slain agent Benjamin Grogan. I'm Peggy Lewis in North Miami, where the congregation at Visitation Catholic Church prayed and mourned for one of its own. Slain Special Agent Benjamin Grogan was a member of this parish and attended church here regularly. 800 people gather inside, but the crowd overflows, and 700 people stand outside to listen to the service over loudspeakers. A lot of people are shocked. A sense of unfairness and injustice, a great sense of wrong. We were at his home last night. We saw Sandy, and uh, our prayers are with the family, and uh, we know that God has taken him to heaven. Special Agent Grogan really loved us when he gave up his life to protect us. And the congregation is helping the family with its grief after church helping with plans for the funeral. This afternoon, family, friends, and members of other law enforcement agencies paid their respects at the funeral home. We're a family, 20,000 active and retired agents. And when you add their families, you're talking of 40 or 50,000 people. And it's like losing a brother. Their shock over the killing of Grogan and Special Agent Gerald Dove is mixed with anger. Nobody in the parish can believe this happened. And I think if they stop selling some of these firearms that, uh, I know that he was, he was very dedicated to his work. I mean, very dedicated. Services for Special Agent Dove will be held in West Virginia. In North Miami, Peggy Lewis, Channel 10 Eyewitness News. FBI Director William Webster tells reporters covering the service that the FBI is investigating everything about Maddox and Platt. He says, quote, in due time, we will know everything that happened about them from the time that they were born until the time they died. And what they are about to discover about the double lives of Maddox and Platt, the two former army buddies who met as military policemen in Korea, is shocking. Shock and sadness is what their families, friends, and those close to Maddox and Platt are forced to come to grips with in the aftermath of one of the darkest days in FBI history. Secrets the men have kept and go to their graves with. the years, FBI directors have paid visits to South Florida to acknowledge anniversaries of Dove and Grogan's service and sacrifice. You might be familiar with this name from today's news. In April of 2011, then-FBI Director Robert Mueller addressed a crowd of several law enforcement to tribute the 25th anniversary of the shootout. Both men put country before self. They put courage before fear. And they put the safety of their community before their own. And that is what special agents do. It is what they are sworn to do. And here's yet another recognizable name, again from today's news. James Comey was in South Florida on April 10, 2015, for the formal naming and dedication of the Benjamin P. Grogan and Jerry L. Dove Federal Building, the new home of the FBI's Miami Division, located in Miramar. During his speech, then-FBI Director Comey says, that the gun battle was significant for many reasons. 
that that day was a day that changed not just the FBI, but all of American law enforcement. We have worked for three decades to make good come from that so that lives were saved, people were protected, and the bad guys were brought to justice in a way that was not possible before that day 29 years ago tomorrow. Morales's shotgun, Jerry Dove's pistol with a bullet hole courtesy of Platt pierced right through the slide, the robber's weapons, and the FBI credentials of Dove and Grogan are part of a display inside the Miramar FBI building. We will never forget. This memorial is a good reminder. It's an important thing, but even without it, we will never forget. This building is both a memorial and an inspiration. Next on The Florida Files, join me, Michelle Solomon, as I dig into the lives of Maddox and Platt, good old boys who were anything but good. Get more of the story and online extras, including archive video and photos at local10.com. Are you a fan of the Florida Files? Tell us what you love about the series on Apple Podcasts and join other fans in leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.